Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor at the church. It's good to be with you. We are inviting our children uh, to join with others in uh, worship education and participation activities. They are uh, learning and preparing to return and, and participate more fully in what, in what we're doing. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we are continuing to move through a uh, sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. This will continue really up, uh, right up until the edge of Christmas. We, some years we'll take a little break around Christmas to do other things, but um, this year we've had Christmas themes all fall, so we're just going to keep running in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, last week, you may remember, we were introduced to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, all of the early chapters are introducing us to Jesus as a, as a person, as the true king who had come uh, to reveal God and to set things right. Last week, Jesus uh, introduced us to the kingdom of God. In many places, Matthew said Jesus was preaching on the kingdom of God. And uh, this week, we have the, the first sort of content of the preaching ministry of Jesus, uh, beginning in chapter 5, moving all the way through chapter 7. Our goal for the fall is to complete this section. Uh, it describes a season in which Jesus, having uh, begun to do very successful ministry with his actions, uh, miraculous power, uh, proclamations of God's kingdom, uh, moves upward to the mountain, gathers his disciples around them, and begins to teach and preach to them. This, uh, these three chapters are known as the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe they're certainly the most famous sermon in the history of the world. They contain uh, aspects of uh, Christianity that would be known by anyone who had even just a little bit of a familiarity with Christianity. Uh, the, the, the section before us today uh, have statements of, of blessing, uh, known as the Beatitudes, uh, also a statement of the church being called to be a light to the world. Um, you may have heard of those things before. Also, in later, as we move through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will introduce us to a form of prayer known as the Lord's Prayer, or some would say the Our Father. We also have within this sermon the Golden Rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And closing this all out, Jesus tells the story of a man who built his house on a rock and urges people to hear his words and put them into practice. They're familiar, and yet the challenge of any familiar thing is to uh, see them with fresh eyes and to allow them to shape us and challenge us in, in ways that can help us to see God differently. I'll read this passage today, and then uh, together we'll look at something that may be familiar, but hopefully uh, remains challenging. Uh, from last week, uh, just a reminder from chapter 4, verse 17, uh, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then picking up in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they per- persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. It's been common in some uh, Bibles to print the words of Jesus in red. Uh, and uh, historically, Christians have affirmed that all of the Bible is God's word. All of it has authority and power. And yet, intuitively, we sense there's something special when Jesus is speaking. If you had a red-letter Bible, you would, we would now be hitting a part of Matthew where there was large sections of red, covering three chapters in a row. In this, we hear the teaching of Jesus, this Sermon on the Mount, uh, the longest um, block of teaching in in the Gospel of Matthew. Similar materials also found in the Gospel of Luke, but it's not exactly the same and the location is different. Uh, I believe the easiest explanation is that what we have here represents a type of sermon that Jesus preached regularly. He was a an itinerant preacher traveling around and preaching about the kingdom as Matthew told us and it's highly likely that he would have repeated material and said similar things in different places in different points in time and it's likely that what we're coming to here is what Matthew regards as the prototypical sermon from Jesus this is the type of thing he said often it is for many of us familiar there are nine statements of blessing uh, I, I find that my desire was to read this in, in sort of the most uh, uh, contemporary uh, English fashion possible. And if we did that, we would probably say blessed, right? We don't usually walk around and say blessed, do we? Uh, maybe you do. Um, but in a text like this that is so familiar and has been used for so long and passed down through so many ways, we find ourselves intuitively, instinctively using older language, just as we might when we come to the, uh, the, the uh, Lord's Prayer, say, Our Father who art in heaven. Maybe you've, ever, you've prayed that way. Most of you don't use that language in everyday speech, right? How art thou? <laughs> but when we hit something so, so steeped in our tradition and our culture, we, we instinctively use the words we've heard before. And so I, I actually read it today. <laughs> Blessed. I, I couldn't help but say it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There are in these Beatitudes nine statements of blessing. Uh, The first state all follow a similar formula. They they pronounce a blessing on a group of people who otherwise wouldn't look blessed. And then there's a reason of why they will be blessed and what good thing will happen. So they each begin with the statement of a blessing or blessed uh, uh, scholars say maybe the best way to think about this is, is Jesus saying you're really fortunate. This is a really good place to be. And then he describes a situation that doesn't seem at all good to us. Right? There's, there's nine things going on that don't seem at all good. And then they're followed 
by something that is clearly good. So in a sense, there's sort of a formula, or we might say a recipe. Jesus is saying, this is a, there's a blessing on this group of people in this circumstance, in this setting, because this is going to come from it. Now, because this is so familiar to us, some of you read this and it just sounds obvious. And maybe you haven't even thought about it that much. But what Jesus was doing here was deeply provocative. Because he is pairing together something that seems not at all a blessing with something that is. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, you might nod and agree and and move along because you've heard it before. But it's actually fairly provocative, maybe even a little bit disturbing. Maybe you come in today not super familiar with Christianity, or maybe you're not considering yourself already on board. If that was the case, when you hear that, you might be thinking a little differently. You might think, I'm not so sure that's actually a blessing. I would much rather not mourn, after all. And if Jesus is intending to give us a general rule about how life works... I'm skeptical because I've seen lots of people mourn and not be comforted. In fact, I can think of many times in my life, you might be thinking, where I have mourned and saw precious little comfort. There are other ways in which we might look at these Beatitudes cynically, and maybe to some degree, honestly. Jesus, after all, is saying something here that's meant to be provocative. It's meant to be disturbing. He's announcing the coming of God's kingdom and calling people to repentance. He's shaking them up. It's not our intention that we just sort of nod and agree and smile and move on. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, you might find yourself thinking, I'm not sure that that's true, or maybe I'm not even sure that's a good thing to say. A broad scope of human history would provide plenty of examples where the meek did not inherit the earth. They got crushed. And maybe you find yourself saying, you know, this isn't at all the way the world works. Where I work, the meek don't inherit anything. It's fortune that favors the bold. If you're meek in my office place, you just get pushed aside. If you don't push your ideas forward with my advisor, you're not going to be listened to. If you don't really assert yourself in these relationships I'm in, you're going to be crushed. Karl Marx found this to be not just untrue, but dangerous. He spoke of religion as the opiate of the people. Perhaps he was thinking about this sort of a verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Mark said, no, that's not it at all. We live in a a place where there's just everything is a massive power struggle of politics between people of different groups and different settings. And if you're meek, you're going to be crushed. I think as his ideas grow in favor, the suspicion that Christianity is either untrue or unhelpful may grow. Well, as I said, this is a recipe, and I think one of the reasons we may struggle with it, and if you start to struggle a little, that's good, because then Jesus is provoking you. But one of the reasons we we struggle to receive this is it is, in a sense, a recipe, but we can take it out of its context and misunderstand what the recipe is for. We can begin to look at this as a recipe and actually miss perhaps even the main ingredient. 
when our recipes go wrong, we get bad results. This past week, I was uh, making something. I've been cooking a little bit more. My wife's increased her work hours, and uh, I've been cooking a little more. When you, you cook more often than, you know, every once in a while, you have to come up with new things. So I've been trying new things. This past week, I made uh, coleslaw, a vinaigrette coleslaw. Um, I spoke to Google. Google showed me the recipe, and we were following along. And uh, I tasted the coleslaw, and it was so bitter that my mouth puckered. And we went back. I was with my daughter, and I said, Stella, what did we do wrong? We looked at the recipe. We had forgotten the sugar. It was a little sugar and good vinaigrette coleslaw. It was a horrible result. In other cases, if you're not following the recipe properly or carefully, you can make even worse results. Before you could talk to your uh, electronic device about recipes, uh, and still to this day, my favorite cookbook is called The Joy of Cooking, because it's, it's not just a list of recipes, it is an expression of life. And, and when you enter, en, enter into any recipe, they not only tell you their list of ingredients, but they give you a whole paragraph of discussion about how to do it, the history of how it's been done. Uh, the problem with the joy of cooking is if you're moving quickly, the actual main ingredient is buried sometimes in the text and you can miss it. So you could be trying to do something, you know, like a, 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 a you know, barbecue braised chicken and you glance at the recipe and you miss the chicken and all you have are the list of ingredients. Now, fortunately, I'm not that bad that this ever actually happened, but I've started into recipes and I've missed the main ingredient. Can you imagine barbecue braised chicken with no chicken? That would be awful. It would be even worse than my coleslaw. Okay, you're wondering where I'm going with this. If we see these beatitudes as, in a sense, a recipe, a, a description of blessing for those who are unfortunate, we want to make sure we know what the recipe is for, and we want to make sure we don't actually miss the main ingredient. This text, because it's so famous, is sometimes just plucked right out of its context. I've seen the Beatitudes written on curtains before. It's a wonderful reminder of God's blessing in unexpected places. But it's easy for us to pluck them out of their context and think that Jesus is just giving us generally wise statements about good things in the world, how the world works. It's not what he's doing. Mark, Matthew told us specifically already that Jesus went everywhere preaching about the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are about the kingdom of heaven. The first and the eighth specifically say, blessed are those who, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't talking just about life in general. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we remember from last week that the main thing that Matthew wants us to know is that we can never really know the kingdom of heaven unless we know the king. Jesus is the main ingredient in this recipe. The kingdom of heaven, the life of discipleship, someone who enters the kingdom of heaven through repentance and faith and walks with Jesus as a disciple, that's what this is about. After all, as we look at the text, the, the setup for all of us is that Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he spoke to his disciples. Now, it may be that some in the crowds came with them, but the one thing Matthew tells us is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And as we look at the context of some of these things, we see that Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account. 
What he envisions here is people who are in the life of discipleship, people who are following Jesus. The Beatitudes, the statement of blessing, is the statement of blessing on someone who walks with Jesus, experiences both the suffering and the joy and the beauty of his life because they're connected to Jesus. They don't make sense if we pull them out of that context. We can't just take them wherever we want as a, as, a, as a sort of general principle and stick them down somewhere. In practice, when we look at it in the short term, the peacemakers often are not blessed. The peacemakers are shot at from both sides. But in Jesus, in Jesus, this picture looks so radically different. Let me do uh, a couple things today. First of all, just remind us, as we think in those terms, here's a, a couple guidelines for the Beatitudes. Three, three principles we can take with us as we see Jesus as the center of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is essentially teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, then, and then we'll look at each of the Beatitudes quickly and just think about how it may apply. So, so three quick, three principles. What, what do we learn as we look at the Beatitudes as we, as we think about them? Uh, first of all, we recognize that the Beatitudes are actually a very accurate picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we might say, you know, uh, I can think of many situations where uh, someone was mourning but not comforted. That is true. But the things that we see here are an accurate description of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, throughout the fall, we've been reading a, a little section of the Westminster Shorter Catechism again and again and again at the end of our service. You may have picked up on it by now. There are two questions about the life and ministry of Jesus that says, how is Jesus humbled and how was Jesus exalted? We'll read it today after the sermon. It's, uh, it's on the, the uh, page eight if you want to glance at it. Um, but in these two things, we have a description of the two very different movements in the life of Jesus. There are ways in which Jesus came down, 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 down. He was born into humanity. He was born into poverty. He, he, he grew up in a, a marginalized society on the edges of the Roman Empire, a, a, a manual laborer from a town of no real account. He, he ministered as a homeless man without any real stable income, and he was rejected and abandoned by his friends and subjected to the worst humiliation of all, public crucifixion. As he hung naked on the cross, Jesus moved even into death itself, the depth of humiliation. And then Jesus was exalted. He was exalted. He was, he, he, it was impossible for death to hold him. He was a righteous man. He was not bound by this. Having come down into death, he now goes up into exaltation. He's raised from the dead. After a period of ministry with the disciples, he ascends into heaven. He is given the name above every name. He is seated at the right hand of God where he is ruling and reigning. This downward and upward movement describes the whole picture of the life of Jesus. The author Paul Miller summarizes humiliation and exaltation by calling it the J-curve. It's a helpful term from a recent book that some of us are reading. J-curve reminds us that Jesus went down before he came up. And in this passage, we see the downs and the ups of the life of Jesus all together. If you look at Jesus in the passage, it all begins to look a little different, doesn't it? 
Jesus, after all, was poor in spirit. He mourned for sinners. The Old Testament introduced him in the, the book of Isaiah as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was meek and came not in overt power, but he, he came washing his disciples' feet, riding not a war horse but a, a donkey as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. He hungered and he thirst, thirsted for righteousness, literally fasting, but more than that, concerned at every moment completely with God's purposes. In him we see mercy. He was pure in heart, completely devoted to God. He was a peacemaker, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, making, he made peace by the blood of the cross. And yet Jesus also demonstrated the, the flip side of all these things. He is the, the true son of God who, uh, who in his hungering and thirsting was comforted. You may remember the story from just a few weeks ago. After his fasting, he was comforted in the desert. And in his ascension, in his uh, uh, being lifted up into glory, the text says he inherits the kingdoms of the earth. He received mercy for all of his people. And he beholds God face to face. Truly, he is the one called most completely and accurately the son of God. We could go on. We could look at this in more detail, but the life and the ministry of Jesus really maps tightly to this. In, in, in particular, it maps tightly to this in the sense that the entire ministry of Jesus was the exact opposite of what the world expected. It's one of the leading features of uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are not exactly what we would expect if we were only looking at the world through our limited human lens. And the Apostle Paul says this is not an accident. The world in its wisdom didn't know God and didn't receive Jesus. Therefore, God was pleased to reveal himself in humiliation, even the humiliation of the cross. In other words, the ministry of Jesus takes its shape, its downward descent into humility exactly because it exposes our pride, our self-sufficiency, and our rejection of God. Well, the Beatitudes have that same structure. If you think about it, if we were to come up with a, a list of common blessings that modern people might say, they would sound very different. In some cases, the exact opposite. We would say, blessed are the assertive, because fortune favors the bold. And we might flip it the other way and say, cursed are the pure in heart, because they never have any fun. Miserable are the peacemakers because everyone criticizes them. Those are the statements of our world and how it works. And yet the Beatitudes in their form not only challenge it, but they begin to subvert it. Because we know in the deepest heart of hearts that there must be more to life than power and privilege. And though the Beatitudes are upside down thinking about how to navigate the world, I think the power of, these, of this teaching and the reason why it has such a lasting impact in the lives of people is they speak to the deep longings of the human heart. We want a world that's more than just coercive power. We want a world that's more than just manipulating people for our own pleasure and ends. In a sense that we sh modern people struggle to know how this is, can be true, there's a sense in which we long for it. We long to see this reality. 
The third thing to keep in mind as we look at the Beatitudes is that the intention of Jesus is to give this upside-down pattern, this, this sort of counter-cultural message to be not only the pattern of his life, but the pattern of your discipleship. Though they match the life and the ministry of Jesus with his downward movement to death and his upward movement into life, they're presented as the road of discipleship for those who would follow. This is teaching about the kingdom. For those who repent and believe and receive the king as their Lord and Savior, the life of the Christian begins to map on to the life of Jesus. This J-curve is not only for Jesus, but it's our life, our ministry, our experience in the kingdom. That's what he's telling us here. Jesus is not giving us the, the full range of how we think about all of these topics. What he's doing is he's showing us that as we go down with him in death, we do so in faith, believing in the power of the resurrection. Even more than that, the, the movement of God's people into these beatitudes not only becomes the way we grow spiritually and the way that we know him, it becomes the way we show Jesus to the world. I don't think it's an accident that the Beatitudes uh, conclude with a statement of the vibrant, countercultural, contrasting image of the church. It's, it's precisely because the Beatitudes and the, the Christian life is different that the church can be said to be light in the darkness. You're the light of the world, Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. In both of those statements, it's exactly the contrast that Jesus draws out. If you're the light of the world, be different. If you're the salt of the earth, be different. If you lose your difference, you're no longer good for anything. It's exactly because the church enters into this experience of the life of Jesus, sharing in his death and in his resurrection. It's in that that we have our witness. We go down with Jesus in unexpected ways and we come up in unexpected ways. What does that look like? Let's move and, and look at the specific things quickly now that, we, now that we've thought uh, more broadly about its application. These uh, eight or nine, depending on whether you group the last two together, these eight or nine beatitudes show a number of ways in which our calling as disciples will be like the life and ministry of Jesus. I don't believe it's the intention of Jesus to tell us uh, everything about what we would do. And, and when we hear statements like, blessed are those who mourn, we're not to, to conclude from that that the only thing Christians ever do is mourn. Right, this isn't a statement for how, how your life always will be. After all, this very text speaks later of those who should rejoice and be glad, even in their suffering. The New Testament commands people to rejoice, to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who joy, rejoice. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 speaks again and again of the call to rejoice in the Christian life. It's not a statement of, of, of abstract behavior even for a disciple. It's a description of how mourning and grieving becomes the place in which we encounter God through Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what it means to be 
poor in spirit? In some ways, the term is so broad in general, it's almost hard to grasp. We would know the opposite, uh, fullness of spirit. Uh, We we would be, in a sense, full of ourselves. We would be uh, triumphant. We would be, if we were full in spirit, the life of the party. We don't exactly want to be poor in spirit. It's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of a person who's come to the end of themselves, who recognizes their lack and their inability to really be all that God has called them to be. Or maybe their ability to simply make life work on its own, even in the most limited of ways. I think this first beatitude reminds us of our entry point into the Christian life. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to turn, to turn back to God with fresh obedience, to look to him, to surrender life to God, to be a follower of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Repentance happens when we are poor in spirit because we know we can't do it on our own. Some of you have seen this in very marked ways in your life. You were running from God, and in a a great act of mercy, God brought you to a place of great poverty of spirit, and you were willing to change and turn and go the other direction in obedience. For some of us, we've grown up in the church, and through long and slow, gradual processes, God has continued to convince us that we have a poverty of spirit. What do you do with your poverty of spirit? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? The places we know we can't control, the things we know that are uncomfortable, the stuff we'd rather hide, the stuff we don't want people to see about us. In this kingdom J-curve, Jesus tells us poverty is the spirit where we enter into God's kingdom. Every time you pray, you're, in a sense, confessing your poverty of spirit. I can't do it. I need you. And what in the eyes of the world is a place of shame and misery to be avoided at all costs becomes, in the economy of the kingdom of Jesus, the invitation to the very heart of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It's surely not the intention of Jesus that we would uh, uh, spend all of our life mourning. As if chopping onions and generating fake tears earned some privileges in heaven. But life in its natural form offers plenty of opportunities to mourn. I think the contrast in the world is not so much mourning versus rejoicing. Both of those things find their place in the kingdom of heaven. The contrast with our world is a life that never reflects and never feels deeply. We put mourning on hold by living a life of constant distraction never straying into the depths of human experience, avoiding real contact, real intimacy, and staying in tight control, lest we ever risk being sad. Jesus says we mourn in him as people with a heavenly father who brings comfort. And our mourning and our grief becomes a pathway into the heart of God. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How is that possible? Well, it's possible if God is the king. If Jesus ruling and reigning under him is actively working, if God is sovereign over all events, then we know at the end of the day, pushing ourselves forward isn't the most important thing. We're able to take a step back and allow space for God to move, space for others to be exalted. We're able to take our hands off the reins of control. Meekness is not fundamentally our posture before other people, but our posture before God. The Old Testament speaks of Moses as the meekest man who ever lived. He was submitted before God, humbled before God, usable by God, and yet at times deeply provocative to the Egyptians around him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they they shall be satisfied. Jesus speaks here of a longing and a desire for what is good and right and godly. What do you hunger for? For what do you thirst? Do you dare to thirst for righteousness? For thirst for things beyond your control? Do you dare to hunger for God's work in the world, for a world to be changed and redeemed? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the quickest path to being reminded of our inability to affect real change on our own. In fact, uh, uh, the flip side of it is often the case. Those who are peacemakers find in their immediate experience not loud shouts of praise but often sharp denunciations as each of the warring parties begins to see them as an enemy. And those who walk with Jesus may own the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus warns them very clearly in the final two statements, if you're going to follow me, you will receive in times and in part the same persecution I received. I think... uh, in, in Matthew, these last two statements form something of a capstone of the Christian life. If our entry into discipleship is based on our poverty of spirit, the capstone and the concluding view of the Christian life is that in our embrace, even of persecution, we confirm that we are disciples of Jesus. Final thought before we close. The final beatitude I skipped over, I just wanted to pause on in conclusion in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's an intriguing statement. I found myself turning it over in my head all week long. It's here we see, in in one hand, uh, almost an impossible call. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, which of us would dare to say that we are truly pure in heart? Jesus alone is without sin. And yet the Bible, though it calls us to acknowledging our sin, does again come back with this unflinching urge that we should draw near to Jesus and be more like him. It places before us this high calling of pursuing purity of heart of seeking to to look inward at the deepest of our desires and asking, is God ruling and reigning here? 
God, are you, are you grabbing hold of my desires? Friends, if we were to read this single recipe statement without Jesus, we would be crushed. If this is all you had of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, and you really grabbed it and took hold of it, and you ran without Jesus, you would be crushed by it. Because with any honesty, you would see how far short you fall. Jesus was pure in heart, and in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection, he brings us into the presence of God, real forgiveness of sins as we are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. But Jesus does more than that. Jesus begins to change us. We read that already in our, in our service today. We are God's children now by faith in Jesus. First John chapter 3, we are God's children now. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is, impure, as he is pure. Friends, Jesus puts before us this great calling of the Christian life that we would increasingly see God and know him. Now we do it in the eyes of faith. Then we will see him truly as he is, even as we now are known. We sang of that earlier. Oh God, we, we long to know you. We long to see you, we sang in, in the last of our opening songs. Almighty God, we long to see you open our hearts and make them pure. Let me just leave that challenge before you. This is provocative, urgent message of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Would you dare to pray, oh God, may I see you more? Would you, would you show me my heart? And would you rule there? Jesus isn't playing around here. These are not just nice little sayings. He's going to the, the depth of your heart and he's asking you, would you long for the purity of vision to know God more? In all of these commandments, there will be times in which in all of these beatitudes, walking with Jesus will feel even like death. So we seek to know Jesus better. But in Christ, the power of his resurrection is bringing life. There is the promise, not only of future glory, but the promise that now we can be people who know God. As I said the sentence, I thought, I can't believe I'm saying this sentence. Think of that sentence. You can be people who know God and increasingly see him in faith. Is there any greater thing that you could do? Let's pray together towards that end.